Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. This episode has an energy storage theme running through it. We speak to a fuel cell expert about the role that the devices will play in the decarbonization of the economy and the challenges involved in improving fuel cell technologies. But first, we talk to the co-founder of a quantum computing company that is using its processors to better understand what goes on in batteries. The quantum computer maker Q was founded in 2015 by Jung Sang Kim and Chris Monroe using trapped iron qubit technology that they developed at the University of Maryland and Duke University in the U.S. In October 2021, the company was listed on the New York Stock Exchange, and in January, it teamed up with the carmaker Hyundai to use quantum computers to simulate the structure and energy of lithium oxide, which is used in batteries. I'm joined down the line from College Park, Maryland, by co-founder Jung Sang Kim, who is also INQ's Chief Technology Officer. Hi, Jung Sang. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Hamish. Very nice to be here. Thank you for the invitation to speak with you. Thanks for joining us, Jung Sang. So INQ makes quantum processors that use trapped ions as qubits. Can you give us a simple description of how the technology works? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so the quantum computers need qubits to represent um, the quantum information, which is basically a two-level quantum system that can support uh, superposition, entanglement, all the basic foundations of quantum uh, computing. What we use is uh, two ground state levels of a hyperfine ground states uh, of an atom. Um, and we strip an electron out, and therefore the atom will have charge, and we use that as a handle uh, to isolate uh, the atom in, the spa in space. Uh, but with this, uh, there has been, uh, I mean, ideal initially these uh, atomic ions were used for atomic clocks, um, extensive applications there, and that's where the basic technology was developed, um, mainly by uh, my colleague uh, Chris Monroe and his partner uh, David Weinland at, at NIST uh, for a long time. Um, but we also, he, they also realized that this serves as an ideal uh, quantum bit in, in many ways. Um, so the, um, the individual atoms serve as qubits, and we can actually use either microwaves or, or lasers to induce transitions between these levels, which is used as a uh, gate operations. Um, and by leveraging the Coulomb interaction between atoms that are these atomic ions that are trapped in a single trap, uh, we can actually use that as a mechanism to uh, manipulate the entanglement. So this actually provides a, a pretty, pretty ideal uh, physical platform to implement all functions of, uh, of quantum computing that are necessary uh, with uh, fidelity levels that are really, really quite high. Uh, so we feel that this is an, an ideal uh, place to, to start. Um, lots of uh, laser and optics technology and full integration uh, so that you can actually program these quantum computers using software. So what is the, the state of the art um, at the moment at INQ? How many trapped ions can you use in your processors? Well, that's a great question. I think uh, your question actually is a little bit convoluted. Uh, maybe you recognize it or not. When you say how many trapped ions can you use, um, 
first question is how many ions can you trap? But then the more important question is how many of these things can you actually use in a real computation? Um, and in my uh, uh, opinion, and also IonQ's position, is the second part is more important. Meaning if you um, have a quantum computer with, say, n qubits, uh, we want to make sure that we can do meaningful quantum computation involving those n qubits. Um, and therefore, we would like to make sure that there are n, roughly, you know, at least n squared entangling gate operations you can do among them, because that's what uh, a real quantum algorithm is. For example, if you have a thousand qubits, but if you can only do 10 entanglements, then you really cannot utilize more than a handful of qubits in your computation, and therefore the quantum computer is actually not that meaningful. Um, so that's the metric by which we, we go. Um, if you have n qubits, I want to make sure that we can operate a, about n squared entangling uh, gate operations and, and get a decent result out. Um, and that also means uh, as you increase the number of qubits in your system, you have to make sure that they can do more accurate uh, gate operations, that can concatenate enough gates to do meaningful computations. So from that perspective, uh, we have uh, quantum computers um, that have about, where, where you can utilize about 10 to 11 qubits um, and that are in commercial services today. Uh, many of our internal current developments uh, use uh, a, a few dozen qubits uh, at uh, that, that can actually de do a, a pretty deep calculations. That's kind of the where the study is. And at INQ, you've you've chosen to use trapped ions for qubits rather than superconducting circuits. And and at the moment, superconducting circuits seem to be more popular. What why the choice of trapped ions? Well, that is a great question. Um, I, I don't know whether they're more popular. Certainly, there are companies who are and, and research groups who are um, heavily working with uh, superconducting qubits. But I think the history of ion trap quantum computing is actually quite a bit longer, as you may know. Um, the first quantum logic gate was demonstrated by uh, you know David Weiland and Chris Monroe in the mid 1990s, and that was uh, faster than earlier than any other physical system. So, in that sense, there is a long history of this uh, technology. The reason um, that I've, uh, I I was actually, you know, I personally worked on semiconductor-based quantum optics uh, as my in my graduate school, and I only got into atomic physics um, to work on quantum computing uh, after I started my faculty position at Duke. So I'm kind of a latecomer to the field, uh, but I think there are some really interesting advantages uh, there. So first is something that I only came to realize after working on this system for about a for about a decade um, is if you think about an ideal medium to store information, a quantum information, it actually doesn't get much better than using individual atoms in hyperfine ground states um, because uh, you typically characterize the uh, storage of a quantum bit. Uh, Using, if you borrow language from, from NMR, the nuclear magnetic resonance, um, there's T1, which actually uh, describes the decay, the natural decay of the, uh, of, the, of the energy levels, between the energy levels. And T2, which uh, recognizes the, the dephasing between the two. And these are the way, mechanisms by which a qubit degrades. Um, it turns out that if you look at hyperfine ground states um, and look at this T1, it's actually measured in millennia, um, meaning if you look at hydrogen atom, what is the hyperfine ground state uh, spontaneous emission lifetime? Um, it's estimated to be about a few million years. <laughs> it's actually very long. It's, it's, a, it's, it's never been measured because it's too long. Um, so there, the T1 is practically limited by your vacuum levels. You, when, you, when the 
qubit collides with background molecules. That's how you lose P1. Uh, so by improving vacuum, you can, in principle and in practice, get to as long as T1 as you want. The T2 is about uh, dephasing, which means that uh, there is this uh, trivial e to the i omega t kind of time evolution if you have an energy difference between two levels. And keeping track of that phase means you need to know exactly what that energy level difference is and make sure that that doesn't change over time. It turns out that if you were to pick a cesium atom uh, and look at its hyperfine ground states, um, that energy level is um, on the order of 9.9 gigahertz or something like that. Um, and it turns out that that number, that that frequency is exact. It's exact in the sense that that is the absolute reference that we use to define time. So there is no error in principle. Everything else, um, basically the classical clock that you use to keep track of that frequency has errors, but not your uh, cesium hyperfine ground state. Turns out that the qubit that we use has exactly the same physics, meaning um, you can, in principle, pick one of our qubits and define time that way. And then by definition, it's T2 is infinity. And it's your technology to lock your classical clock to keep track of time with respect to that atom um, is what's limiting your, your performance. And therefore, people have taken uh, these hyperfine uh, qubits. Uh, if you just trap it without making any extra effort to make it longer coherence, you get a few seconds coherence time. Uh, but if you make an effort to stabilize your clock and, and um, shield it from the environment better and so on, you can extend it to hours. And, and those experiments have been, have been done. Um, so it is a really ideal um, qubit to store information. You, you, it really doesn't get much better than that until you change the definition of a second. Um, so that's kind of where we start. Um, and it turns out that um, the atomic physics is very clean, meaning most of these processes can actually be um, um, pretty much uh, well understood from, from first principles. And you can, you can, in most cases, get to those limits, uh, which means that a lot of the gate operations that we do are extremely high fidelity, much higher fidelity than most other systems that, that have been uh, used. Um, so that's the advantage. Of course, the downside is uh, if you look, walk into an atomic physics experiment, a lab laboratory, and then compare that with, uh, with a, a semiconductor chip that we use today, the manufacturing and integration technology is not as well um, advanced. But I feel like those are areas where we can actually innovate, invent new technologies, and actually solve those problems. So we start from a really good qubit with really good set of operations you can do as a foundation. Um, and then we continue to focus on how we invent the, the technology to make it more scalable. So, so that was, that's our approach, and that's why we chose uh, Trapped Ions. And it looks like uh, the car maker Hyundai is uh, is happy with with your approach. I and Q has recently teamed up with the uh, with the company to use quantum computation to model the chemistry of lithium batteries. Now, why can't these calculations be done on conventional computers? Why are quantum computers needed here? This actually recognition that um, you know simulating or studying um, heavily quantum systems. Is a, is a very hard problem for classical computer. That recognition came from Richard Feynman, um, actually in the 80s, um, because as, as he was looking at some of these quantum problems in, in QED and QCD and, um, and also in chemistry problems, um, just because the interaction of these subatomic particles, like electrons in a, in a molecular orbit, um, the interaction is, is so complex that the, the number of configurations that it can potentially take actually blows up exponentially as the molecule gets bigger and, and as more orbitals are considered. 
Um, and we find the same problem in strongly correlated materials in condensed matter. If you have very strong interaction with uh, uh, correlated uh, electrons, uh, those things uh, basically blow up very quickly in terms of computational complexity. Um, so, and that's because the interaction itself is quantum mechanical. Um, so what, uh, what Feynman, Richard Feynman has uh, speculated and actually pointed out is if you actually had computers that worked on quantum principles, um, it intrinsically has that large silver state space, to, space to work with. It's just that, that he anticipated that, that to be an extremely difficult problem to build a reliable computers that way. Uh, so that recognition has always been there. Um, uh, the, we know computational chemistry. If you go to first principles, evidential calculations for pretty complex molecules are, are really, really hard. Uh, on the flip side, uh, the quantum algorithmic uh, researchers uh, have found out that there are ways to estimate these uh, properties of these molecules uh, by translating the quantum interference problem in a molecule to a quantum computational algorithm. And they have shown that it doesn't blow up exponentially, although um, in, in early uh, algorithms, those tend to be uh, pretty hefty circuits. So technologically, we need very advanced quantum computers to do it. But fundamentally, it actually reduces that exponentially hard problem into that something that is uh, manageable in terms of polynomial. Uh, so um, the, the real um, challenge there to, to make it useful is the algorithms today are still pretty big and the quantum computers today are still not powerful enough. Um, so there remains a gap between what uh, real quantum computers can do versus what's needed from an algorithmic perspective to tackle really complex problems. So I believe there is uh, real room um, for both advances in computational methodology and also optimally executing on a quantum computer and continuing um, the evolution of quantum computer hardware to actually meet those needs. So that possibility is actually a lot closer today um, than we were many years ago. Um, even um, practical companies like Hyundai and others, others in the automotive and other industries, are starting to realize that this reality uh, may be within grasp. So we are starting out a collaboration um, to actually tackle some of these um, uh, difficult chemistry problems, but starting from small enough molecules so that we can actually develop realistic and practical methodology, and then make sure that it scales. As we continue to build better quantum computers, um, the methodology scales. And at some point, I think it's going to overcome what classical computers um, um, are hitting the limits. And we're, we're all kind of working on understanding where that limit is. Uh, hopefully, we are actually quite confident it's actually not too far in the, in the future. It's not decades away. I think it's, it's, a, it's probably a few years away. And what are some other um, potential applications for IonQ's processors? Are, are you looking mostly at quantum chemistry applications, perhaps, uh, I don't know, simulating uh, drugs or, uh, or other important chemical systems? Uh, or, and is there anything beyond quantum chemistry that you're looking at? Absolutely. Um, it, it is very interesting that once we start building these fairly general purpose uh, quantum computers, uh, more and more people are bringing um, about problems that they have been facing in their in their respective domains. And some of those applications are areas that we do not ex anticipate quantum can help um, in, in, in just, even just a couple of years ago. And one of the areas we're seeing a lot of really interesting development in the last few days, uh, last few <laughs> last few years is uh, quantum machine learning. Um, and this is where, 
um, there is a bunch of data um, that we need to sort, whether it's a pattern recognition problem or pattern generation problem or uh, looking for kind of probability distributions that represent some realistic systems so that, that you can actually you know, create samples from to, to understand this behavior. We're seeing that applying quantum models um, to, to capture the features in a data set uh, seems to have some very interesting advantages. Um, and, and these are still in the very early stages. We're seeing some, we have done some um, early stage uh, explorations to show um, that quantum computing, quantum models actually ha uh, indeed show some real uh, qualitative uh, advantage over, over more, more traditional classical uh, machine learning models. Uh, so I think there's a lot of opportunities there. Um, you know, just because the structure of quantum models can capture features that are more complex than, than, than simple uh, classical models. Uh, we feel that there is an interesting opportunity um, in, in quantum machine learning. People are thinking about optimization problems. Um, uh, quite a few um, uh, researchers have, have explored those as an opportunity and, and executed them on quantum computers. Um, chemistry and materials is another area. Uh, so I think those are kind of shaping up um, to be areas that may have a near-term uh, application uh, in the space. And Jung Sang, um, some of our listeners are going to be um, physics students, people doing bachelor's degrees or PhDs, and thinking, um, you know, that they'd really like to get into um, the quantum computing industry. Um, what is your company looking for when you hire um, graduates? And, and what advice would you give to people? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. Um, and I think this is evolving and evolving really fast. Um, I can actually take you back in time, like you go back 50 years, um, you know, these semiconductor chipsets used to, it, it came out of physics, semiconductor physics, and people invented transistors. Um, we started from very fundamental physics, but once it became a practical industry, and then there's a whole host of uh, new technologies, uh, computer architectures, you know, fabrication, chip design, all of the software engineering, all of these new areas uh, spawned. I um, mean, they uh, really, the opportunities came about as the technology matured and started to, to address real world problems. So I think similar things are happening in quantum computing. Um, of course, uh, the basic research of quantum computing all started in physics. It's all quantum mechanics and quantum physics. Uh, but we're finding out that in order to build these advanced quantum computers and, and put them to practical use, uh, we really need a multidisciplinary um, uh, talent. We we have we need physicists, theoretical physicists, atomic physicists, um, this general condensed matter physicists. We need the physicists, but we also need electrical engineers. We need we need optical and mechanical engineers. We need software engineers. Uh, so we're putting together this um, team with very diverse uh, skill sets who come together, uh, look at the problem, uh, get cross trained, and then really start to get creative uh, about solving and tackling issues. So, you know, I think if you are a physicist with some um, knack for more practical um, challenges that you want to, to, to address, um, I think getting into quantum computing industry today would be, uh, would be a fascinating opportunity. And we certainly are looking for um, a passionate um, and, and enthusiastic physicists to come and join INQ. Well, that's great, Jung Sang. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. All right. Thank you very much, Hamish. Hydrogen fuel cells provide a way of converting stored chemical energy into electricity without the emission of greenhouse gases.
As a result, they can play important roles in decarbonizing the economy. As Physics World's James Dacey discovers when he meets a physical chemist who is developing new fuel cell technologies. Governments across the world are looking to transform energy systems by switching fossil fuels for low carbon sources, a move that's necessary to meet climate pledges and to strengthen energy security. There's an abundance of energy to be harnessed from renewable sources such as wind and solar. But if renewables are to replace fossil fuels, then we'll become increasingly reliant on technologies for converting electricity into chemicals and fuels, and vice versa. Rechargeable batteries are the most familiar devices for doing this. You find them everywhere from your phone to electric cars to backup systems in power grids. Fuel cells are similar to batteries, but not quite the same. However, they're also crucial in this green energy transition, and they're one of the keys to unlocking the much-promised hydrogen economy. To find out more, I travelled to the Institute of Ceramics and Glass, a lab of the Spanish National Research Council, based at the Autonomous University of Madrid. I met with physical chemist Glenn Mather, I began by asking Mather if he could explain the difference between a battery and a fuel cell. So um, basically a fuel cell is an electrochemical device like a battery that converts chemical energy into electrical energy. So you have uh, an anode electrolyte and a cathode, just as in a battery. The difference between a battery and a fuel cell is that in a fuel cell we supply the fuel uh, continuously. So as long as you have a, a continuous supply of fuel, you have a continuous source of electrical energy, electricity. Um, and then there's, there's different sorts of fuel cells uh, which can be categorized according to the type of electrolyte. So we have um, proton exchange membrane fuel cells that have a polymer electrolyte membrane. Uh, we have uh, phosphoric acid fuel cells with a phosphoric acid electrolyte, alkaline fuel cells, molten carbonate fuel cells, and I work on solid oxide fuel cells. And these have uh, ceramic electrolytes that conduct uh, oxide ions or protons. And the um, electrodes that are also principally ceramic materials. So um, my job is basically to improve the, the performance and the stability of the ceramic components for solid oxide fuel cells. Presumably there's different types of fuel cells that have very different applications. So can you yeah, talk so me through some of the end uses? They not only can be categorized according to their electrolyte material, but also the temperature of operation. So uh, the most common type of fuel cell is the uh, polymer exchange membrane fuel cell. That is the, the greatest number of shipments of the biggest market. And that is an operating temperature between about 80 and 100 degrees. Uh, and th that has applications in uh, transport, uh, portable applications, and to some extent, stationary applications. Uh, so uh, in my area of solid oxide fuel cells, um, the temperature of operation is above 500 degrees, so it's between 500 and 1,000. So that means that uh, some of the applications overlap with proton exchange membrane fuel cells, but others are different. So the, the solid oxide fuel cell is more suited to stationary power, uh, on a large scale, uh, backup power for for hospitals, uh, military hospitals, or data centres, and less in uh, transport. Um, 
And that's partly due to the slower startup times to get to this higher temperature, which isn't a problem for the polymer uh, membrane fuel cells. But uh, the solid oxide fuel cells have a greater efficiency. So uh, there is interest in the solid oxide fuel cells where efficiency is key. Because I've heard some people say that yeah, it will certainly fit a niche, but it'll be difficult maybe to compete with your sort of combination of lithium-ion batteries fueled by renewable sources, because in the case of fuel cells, isn't there a certain amount of carbon produced as a byproduct? And there's quite a lot of energy needed to generate the fuels in the first place in, in some cases. Um, is, are there sort of areas where the technology can become even greener? What, what are the, in the next few years, what are the big things yeah, that so, can do? Yeah, um, the, so the, there's this talk, they, they've classified hydrogen according to its colour, so we have brown hydrogen, which is dirty hydrogen produced from mm -hmm. coal gasification, and then there's there's uh, blue hydrogen, which is produced from the steam reforming of methane, which is somewhat cleaner, and then there's green hydrogen, uh, which is produced from uh, water electrolysis. The devices which we use in fuel cells, we can, they can be operated in reverse, for, to electrolyze water, uh, and that's something that we, we do here as well. But um, yeah, um, the, um, the problem with uh, hydrogen fuel cell cars compared to lithium, iron, iron, uh, lithium battery cars is basically the hydrogen infrastructure and then economies of scale. I'm sure if, um, if we had enough sales of hydrogen fuel cell cars and enough hydrogen refueling stations, then they're probably more competitive than uh, electrical vehicles, uh, you know, uh, powered by lithium because uh, uh, we have a longer range. The refueling time is much uh, shorter for hydrogen. Uh, and then also the, yeah, I mean, in terms of the, as we move towards a more, uh, you know, a greener society, there are places where we can use these types of cells on a large scale. You know, so we can, uh, we need. Um, we can have a hydrogen economy with hydrogen cars, but we need we need hydrogen to um, offset some of the um, the problems we have with storing renewable energy. So we we have solar and wind, enough solar and wind power to 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 power the world, but the problem is we need to store the electricity that they produce. So what you can do is use solar or wind power to electrolyze water, and then store the energy as hydrogen. Towards the end of last year, there was the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow. So I was following lots of that online. And it was very clear that lots of um, governments and companies are, are jostling to become leaders in the hydrogen economy. What, what are the big uh, industries that are emerging in that sector? Right. So the, 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 main, uh, the main markets for uh, hydrogen at the moment are um, combined heat and power. These um, to replace your boiler, so you, you would have a fuel cell in your house, which would run off uh, uh, natural gas or hydrogen, and that can produce the electricity for your house, and then the, the the surplus can be put back into the grid, and then it can heat up your water supply and your heating for your house. So that is one of the big markets for um, for fuel cells, particularly in Japan. The Japan the Japanese are way ahead with, uh, of us in this. Uh, and then the other market, major market is uh, transport, uh, as I was talking about, in hydrogen fuel cells. Uh, Toyota make the Mirai, which is run on a PEM fuel cell, and then Hyundai have a model, and uh, 
based on a fuel cell. These are actually, you can go and buy them today. Uh, and then there are all the major car manufacturers are um, interested in fuel cells and hydrogen. The other major market for SFC, as I mentioned, is um, backup electricity, uh, un uninterrupted power supply for for certain applications. Some some big um, corporation headquarters are actually um, powered by solar oxide fuel cells. Uh, I think Google is powered by a, a Bloom Energy uh, solar oxide fuel cell unit. So in terms of your research here in Madrid, where does that fit into this picture? At what stage of the research journey um, does your work evolve? Is it the fundamental side of things or is it yeah, the we're, we're, application? So we go from a fundamental research of the materials we use in the fuel cells uh, up to uh, testing the, the actual fuel cells um, on a small scale. Uh, we're talking about maybe two or three centimetres squared, but we can we can scale that up if necessary. But most of our research is, is devoted to improving the performance and the stability of the materials used in the fuel cells. Um, so quite a lot of it is basic uh, material research that we do, yeah. And, and does that involve working with outside parties, like companies? I mean, there are... There's more interest in our work recently. I mean, when I came to Spain about 20 years ago, there seemed to be a boom in, in hydrogen and in the interest in hydrogen and fuel cells. And um, I would say in the past year or two, that's that's come back. So yeah, we've we've just recently uh, uh, joined a platform um, of the CSIC, um, the Consejo Superior de Investigaciones Científicas, uh, dedicated to the, ener the energy transition. And that involves uh, groups from the CSIC uh, and uh, promoting uh, collaborations with industry and scaling up projects for industry. So, that the, for example, there's a hub in Valencia organized by the, uh, the CSIC group there, belonging to the Institute of Chemical Technology, uh, which basically is, is going to construct a pilot plant for electrolyzers, uh, solid oxide electrolyzer cells, and that is funded by uh, private finance research. So, so it sounds like there's lots of different avenues that this is developing. Yeah, so yeah. If, if people listening to this, um, you know, what, what types of researchers do you need in this field? Is it, is it mainly chemists or is it also physicists? Um, I'm a chemist. I work very closely with a physicist, Domingo perez Uh We have a couple of students who are um, uh, chemical engineers. Um, they're also in, uh, in our institute, uh, material scientists. So yeah, it's quite a wide quite uh, variety bit, yeah. of backgrounds. Yeah. And then the work, would you say, it's day-to-day, -day, it's very interdisciplinary. So you're, you might be a chemist, but actually you're using concepts from other subjects. Well, we, because we, we go from synthesizing the materials right to, to, to fabricating cells, to measuring the cells, you know, in the beginning. So the synthesis is basically chemistry. But then at the end, we're analyzing the results, the potential uh, current characteristics of a cell, and that's, that's basically physics. So, you know, we, you, we have to cover a broad spectrum, you know. Okay, and uh, you, say, you said you've been here 20 years now in Yeah, I've been here 20 years. Yeah. Originally from the UK, still yep. got a slight Scottish accent. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, just wondering, in, in terms of that transition, I mean, what, what have been the... Um, the cultural challenges of, of, of coming and working in Spain, and also the, you know, the, the benefits and the things you've learned from um, coming and working in a different country. Right. So, uh, well, I came I came originally to to do a postdoc, and then uh, and then I met my wife here, and that's basically why I stayed in Spain. But uh, 
Um, well, first off, everything is in Spanish when you come here. I know if, if you go to, I previously had an experience working in Holland uh, as a postdoc, and everybody wanted to speak to you in English and practice their English, which is great on some level, but on another level, you, I didn't actually learn Dutch. Whereas here, if you don't learn Spanish fairly soon, then you kind of starve. Yeah, I started <laughs> so, to realize that. <laughs> yeah. so, so the thing I noticed about work uh, here was, uh, uh, you know, um, in terms of requesting finance and so on, it's 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 much more of a group effort. Uh, you need to get several researchers together to collaborate to to write a project. To be honest, uh, since I've spent 20 years here, I, I now don't know what the situation is like in the UK. Yeah. If that's still the same the case, but uh, I didn't here. It's much more. Um, you need research teams to be able to apply for a project. Uh, me by myself, I would never be given a project. I need to have a team of three or four researchers. And then other, uh, you know, PhD students to be able to, so to successfully way, finance like, a project. If you're an early career researcher, then maybe in that sense you you have more influence maybe from from an early stage rather than just relying on uh, the lab yes, head to yes, decide on what's yeah, going on. Possibly, possibly. Well, thanks, Glenn. Thanks for your, your time today, and good luck with developing the research. On the 25th of December, the James Webb Space Telescope blasted off from Earth on a 1.5 million kilometer journey to its orbit at the L2 Lagrange point, where it is right now. From that vantage point, it will observe the cosmos in fantastic detail, launching astronomy into an exciting new era. In the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, host Andrew Glester meets James Webb Space Telescope scientists who recall their experiences of the mission launch and the telescope's journey so far. And they look forward to the first observations of the telescope, which should be made in a few months' time. You can find all the stories podcasts on the Physics World website and at your favorite podcast provider. Also new in astronomy on the website this week, scientists have found evidence that binary stars near the end of their lifetimes can give birth to planets. In binary systems where one star has exploded before becoming a white dwarf, the ejected dust and gas has been seen to form protoplanetary disks with large cavities that could mean planet formation is underway. You can find out more in the research update headlined Ancient Binary Stars Could Give Birth to Planets, Study Suggests. A black hole that's wandering through the Milky Way has also hit the headlines. With a mass estimated to be about seven times that of the Sun, the object was detected by how its gravitational field distorts light that travels past it on the way to Earth. By observing the black hole over several years, astronomers deduced that it's traveling at an astonishing 162,000 kilometers per hour. This may have been the result of the supernova explosion that produced it and then launched it on its way. You can read more on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Solitary Stellar Mass Black Hole Found Wandering Through the Milky Way. 
I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Glenn Mather, Jung Sang Kim, and James Dacey for joining me this week. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. I'll be back again next week, chatting with a quantum computing expert about optimization problems, the hard, the easy, and the problems that may never be solved using quantum processors. Physics World.